Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 12.54 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's right. It is the afternoon. It's a rare bird that happens when a Bitcoin and comes out in the afternoon. Uh, Very late today. My apologies to all those people who are thinking that maybe or were thinking that maybe I wasn't going to do a show today. No, I'm definitely doing a show today. It's going to be an interesting one, too, because I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. Uh, we are going to get into the news. Uh, we've got some we've got some killer news today, and we're going to do some other things, like you know, it's Bitcoin and other stuff. And I don't, I haven't really been bringing you other stuff. And we, I really today, I'm excited because I'm going to bring you some other stuff, and we'll get to that after the first piece of news. I do want to remind everybody. Um, once again, like Bernie Sanders, I'm asking for your help. Why? Well, because if you don't ask, the answer is always no. I want this show to actually be something. I mean, God forbid, I've only been doing it for coming into the, my fifth year of doing this show. And it's, I, I'm just, I'm going to ask for your help. Spread the show, spread the word, man. Get people to listen to the show. Do that through Podcasting 2.0. You know what? I haven't even looked to see what the rankings are at this point. Let me get over here to Fountain.fm, go to Charts, see if I'm still charted. Maybe not. Nope, I am number 12. But coming in at number 11 is one of my very favorite podcasts ever, The Survival Podcast. So at least... At least I'm next to one of the guys, Jack Spirico, that uh, I really have a lot of respect for. Um, And he also is the, he was the last slap in the face when it came to Bitcoin. I was like, okay, okay, okay. You know, my coworker told me about it and then I saw it on something else and blah, blah, blah. And then Jack Spirico was like, are you just, do you just hate money? What's wrong with you? Buy Bitcoin. So I finally bought Bitcoin. So that was Jack Spirico's fault for being the last guy to uh, <clears throat> pull my feathers and get me to actually jump in. But I am number 12. So if you want to give me a hand and a little bit of leg up, I would appreciate it to get back into the top 10. Uh, do I got any boostograms to do? No, I don't want to do 706. Yeah, actually, I do want to do 706. Uh, so, for, so from episode 706, which was yesterday, Bubba with 20,112 Satoshis, holy smoke, says, does it really surprise you about Bitcoin Magazine? Look at what their conferences are filled with. They have been a shit in the shit coin for a long while. This is not new. Yeah, yeah, look, okay, I get it. 
I don't think Bitcoin Magazine made a good move when it came to this whole ordinal shit, and we'll get into some of that as well. Um, not just the Bitcoin Magazine part of it, but the ordinal part of it, because apparently there's some some issues going on and have been going on for a week. Um, <clears throat> I promise you, we'll we'll get to that. Um, the, like last last year's the 2022 conference was filled. Yeah, had a bunch of shit coiners in it. Um, and some of these shit coiners didn't really say that they were going to be shit, you know, all shit coinery, uh, when they, uh, uh, got their spots for Bitcoin magazines, uh, 20, you know, the, the whole Bitcoin 2022 thing. Some of them dropped out when they started talking about shit coins after Bitcoin Magazine announced that they were going to be on the main one of the stages or whatever. I can't remember the one of the guy's names, but we gave him so much shit on Twitter when I was still on Twitter that he bowed out and decided not to go because it was clear to him that he wasn't going to be very well received. And then you had like Kevin O'Leary, you know, Mr. Wonderful, who starts spouting off crap. And a lot of, you got to understand that when you're putting on it, and this is not being apologist, this is just fact. When you're putting on an event of this size with that many speakers, what are the chances that you're going to really be able to control whatever it is these people say? And when they do say stuff that in this particular case is shit coinery, how much, like, so they can control exactly 0%. That's the answer for that question. They can control exactly 0% of what people actually say versus what Bitcoin Magazine thought they were going to talk about when they listed them to go on to one of the stages, right? Now, the second part of that is how much shit is Bitcoin Magazine going to receive for those people who start talking shit coinery at one of their things? And the answer is 100%. It's all Bitcoin Magazine's fault. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, can Bitcoin Magazine be a little bit better about, you know, making sure that this stuff is above board? Yeah, of course they can. Are you going to help them do it? (laughs) Because these guys are still a fairly, you know, have a fairly small staff. It's a huge event. You're talking about multiple tens of thousands of attendees. You're talking about, you know, uh, dozens, not well, dozens. Yeah, actually dozens. You could say dozens of speakers. How do you vet all that shit? I mean, but the ordinals thing, mm, no, that they knew better. Bitcoin Magazine knew better. So there you go for that one. JC Denton. 10,101 Satoshi says V for V to keep you in the top 10. Debout, thank you. Dabowski with a boob says, I'm guessing BTC Magazine has solvency issues. Uh oh. They raised subscription price along with the Ordinals announcement. I wish they would have just raised the subscription more and skipped the JPEG scam. That's an interesting notion. I don't know anything about that. We'll have to see. Kalamona says, with a striper boost, by the way, says, I'm really enjoying your show. Keep it up. Uh, Kalamona, Kalamona, Sir Libre, Kalamona. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, 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 I don't know if I should actually read the uh, uh, email because I don't really want to. You can always go to my Boostagrams 
Bitcoin and on Fountain, and you can actually see this boostogram. So I, I just don't want to overstep my boundaries here. Nick underscore dose, uh, 6,789 Satoshi says, good point about just trying to plant a seed when orange pilling folks. The, no, the, the few orange pill successes I've had took months. None of my early arguments worked. It took many little tiny conversations and lots of listening so I could understand their questions. Nick underscore dose again with 369 sat says, cheers. Blizza with 175 says, have to cut my boost a bit because I am poor, but here's my five cent contribution. Thank you, Blizza. Five cents. If I could get a thousand people doing that, that's, 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 that's money. And five sats is part or five cents is part of that. It really is. So thank you. I appreciate that. Elf Dub 7 with 101 says dope. So there's the boostograms. And now it's time for the news. Well, hold on. Let me just say something. This is going to be very unpopular. I started watching the movie Ron Burgundy. I'm not liking it. It just feels way too juvenile for me. It doesn't, I know, I know. I don't, I've talked about how other people didn't get The Big Lebowski. I understand. I will try to finish this movie and then watch it again. But so far, I'm just not getting the hilarity that everybody else is getting. But be that as it may, we've got other news fish to fry. The New York Times. Shall we talk about it? <laughs> I think we shall. New York Times Bitcoin hit piece backfires as hashtag stop the presses movement erupts on social media. This is by none other than Mark Jeftovic via bombthrower.com. However, it's being picked up by Zero Hedge. Zero Hedge nonetheless, ladies and gentlemen. It's not exactly a small publication at this point. What happens when America's purported Paper of record promulgates an unabashedly biased hit piece against Bitcoin's so-called climate impact, replete with shoddy reporting, wrong data, logical fallacies, and even doctored photographs. We'll come to that here in a second. The public, fed up with being spoon-fed increasingly nonsensical propaganda under the guise of news, turns the spotlight back on the outlet, highlighting the New York Times' very real destruction of habitat, ecosystems, and life-giving, carbon-reducing trees. Via a piece on the BTC Times website and through the at NYTimesUp Twitter account, the hashtag Stop the Presses movement erupted over the weekend, drawing attention to several in inconvenient truths about how the New York Times print edition gets made. Oh my. 27 tree slaughterhouses grind, pulp, and puree approximately 60 million trees every year. Trees absorb CO2. So that's 60 million less all-natural carbon-capturing beings butchered annually just to be defiled with agiprop, read once and then unceremoniously disposed afterwards. The public has had enough. Left unchecked. America's newspaper industry could consume every tree on the planet by the year 2040. 
make your voice heard and tell your congressman that something needs to be done about this unrepentant climate killing juggernaut. So for those of you who are unaware, the at New York Times up Twitter account is also on Noster. And that's where I first saw this. This whole thing started coming up. And honestly, this thing was coming. It may have erupted over the weekend, but the whole stop the presses thing, I started seeing like mid last week, maybe a little earlier, Uh, but it's fairly new. And the fact that it's already gone into zero hedge is making me laugh. It's, this is great. This keep up the pressure. Because this is the kind of bullshit that we have to deal with all the time as somebody who appreciates and understands and wants to, wants to further the mission of Bitcoin and censorship resistant money. Because we've, we have, we've had enough. It's enough. The lunacy that's in the world right now is in every single corner. You can't get away from it. It's either idiocy over here or lunacy to the left of you or just downright stupidity in front of you and behind you is the monster of megalomania, right? I I mean, on all sides, we're captured by just the most filthy, evil detritus. And the New York Times is one of the worst propagators of generalized filth on the planet. And what do they do to get that get their word out? They cut down trees. Now, honestly, ladies and gentlemen, sure, I guess you could go, oh, come on, it's hyperbolic, Dave. I mean, really, how many trees are they really cutting up? And are they going after old growth forests? Well, let's answer that question. No, they're not really going after old growth forests. They, generally speaking, these guys are buying their trees that they're using to pulp from, uh, well, they're buying their paper from paper mills. And the paper mills are the ones that are pulping the trees, right? It's not like the New York Times owns a forest and then they cut the forest down. They're not vertically integrated, right? Now, there was a guy who used to be vertically vertically integrated on his newspapers. And, uh, oh, it was, uh, what, Randolph Hearst. Yeah, Randolph Hearst. Hearst Newspapers, right? Of course, I get the feeling that the New York Times either is part of the Hearst Network or was or something like that. But that was back in the day when, you know, Randolph Hearst was actually alive and he owned forests and he owned paper mills and he owned lumber companies and he owned the newspapers. He owned the whole freaking thing from top to bottom. Not so much anymore. So here's here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to give this to the New York Times. They're basically just buying a shit ton of paper. But their paper consumption is causing actual trees to be cut down. Again, not old growth forests. Now, they're probably getting their paper pulp or their paper from pulp made from wirehauser forests that are basically managed forests. But the problem is this. Clear cutting is just still clear cutting. Yeah, it's like, and, and I've, got a, I've got a couple of logger friends and I don't know who they work for. I don't know if they work for like Weyerhaeuser or whatnot, you know, but I, so I don't want to, you know, real, get into the point where I'm pissing those guys off. But this really, I mean, really, if you're not going to use wood for, for freaking lumber, 
then you just don't cut down the trees. And for New York Times to sit there and tell us that we're destroying the planet when honestly we're not, and we are definitely not cutting down trees, and we are definitely not, we're, we're, we're not doing any of the things that the New York Times is actually doing. They are causing all, like they're causing deforestation, right? They're, and even if it's Weyerhaeuser's managed property, they're still clear cutting all this shit. Yes, they, if they're smart, they go back and plan it again. But what happens to all the paper? Well, it all ends up in a landfill. And cellulose in anaerobic conditions, especially when it gets even a hint of moisture on it, begins to decompose. And what does it produce? An epic shit ton of CO2 and methane, by the way, which is even worse than CO2. And even, you know, for me, I, I don't hyperventilate about CO2 in the atmosphere, but the New York Times does. Every word they're saying about Bitcoin is pure hypocrisy. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's kind of sad that I didn't start this myself or that a lot of us are just walking around, not understanding that, that they've been in the throes of hypocrisy ever since they started writing about Bitcoin. And it's just now that we figured out, oh my God, all the paper. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing, but hey, better late than never. And thank God for at New York Times up the Twitter account. And then I think it stopped the presses on Noster as the uh, account name. I'm not exactly sure about that, but just if you're on Noster, just look for Stop the Presses or uh, or New York Times Up or NY Times Up, something like that, and you'll find the whole thing. But here's the funniest part, is that when I was saying that we'd get back to it, um, doctored photographs, that was in the, the last two words of the first paragraph of this story, doctored photographs. So I go to it, turns out, it is a very lengthy Twitter thread from the account level 39. That is at level 39, the numbers three, nine, all smashed together there. And down around number 14, we get this tweet. And of course it's lambasting the photographic evidence. Cause there was a couple of pictures in the New York times hit piece, but it was also sistered with a film that they put together or small, small film. And it was drone footage showing the Rockdale, Texas, uh, mining site. And it was all hazy and looking, well, turns out that those photographs are doctored and level 39 put together a huge thread documenting to what depths the New York times hired gun and photographer, what was this? Does, is there a name here? Russell? Nope. Nope. I can't seem to find the name of the photographer they used. It doesn't matter because the photographer acted in a very unethical manner. And it seems very clear that the color data in the drone footage that the New York's time, New York times used was indeed doctored. In other words, it was manipulated at the root level of the actual footage. Okay. Not, I mean like the actual footage goes into like, you know, um, Adobe after effects or premiere pro. And then Adobe also has, you know, a color grading way to change colors of film and stuff like that. Well, all this technology has been in digital film editing for years and years, and you can do things like stretch the white point 
or back up the black point. And we don't have to get into all that, but what it does is it artificially changes the quality of the thing that you see. And several people, including Roy, Roy Highside, uh, says that it's, the, it's confirmed that the drone footage in the New York Times was altered to make the rural air in Texas appear polluted. This is photographic manipulation and highly unethical. That's directly from Level 39. And, and this particular tweet shows Rory Highside um, saying, or he's got his, he's doing his little analysis. And he says, he's talking to, oh, it's Jordan Vondi is the guy's name, the dude that did the, the, the hack that they hired to do the video footage. He says, Rory says to Jordan, says, either you're a completely clueless hack or you extended the bounds of your black point to wash the image out. See how there's zero color information, not just a low amount, below 80? This is altered. And he shows, and Rory's got a couple of screenshots of the color data graphs showing where he says below 80. It's, it's like a scale of where color appears. We'll get, again, we won't get into it. But both or all three of the red, green, and blue channels that make up a video, like, because that's when you see in color, it's red, blue, and green. At a point, there's no color information that's registering in the graphs that he's showing. There should be color registration or at least some kind of color at one point or another across the entire scope of this particular footage. And Rory is basically saying, this is not true. It looks manipulated. And then there ends up being several points of data on tweet after tweet after tweet after tweet in this thread that suggests that the color, manip the color in the footage was indeed manipulated at the digital level. And that's unethical, right? So the New York Times in every aspect that they could have been unethical is indeed unethical. They cause CO2 to be expelled into the air, which they say they hate. They're cutting down, they're causing trees to be cut down for it, which, you know, makes it even worse because the trees can't soak up CO2, right? And uh, there, and then the final coup de gras is that they hired this video, this video guy to falsify data because that's in, in fact what he's doing. He's falsifying actual data. In science, that gets you fired, detenurized, and basically in a situation where nobody will publish your shit ever again. And I hope that's what happens to this Jordan guy, that nobody ever hires him as a videographer ever again, because after this shit from level 39, it's clear that Jordan is not only an unsophisticated hack, but has acted in an unethical manner, unbecoming of his profession as a videographer and a photographer. All right. So if you guys want to jump in on that bandwagon, it's hashtag stop the presses, hashtag New York Times up, hashtag NY Times up. Now let's see exactly about that BTC Times article that was mentioned about this. It's written by Walker V printed in BTC Times, and it's entitled, The New York Times is Murdering Millions of Trees. 
I recently published an expose of the New York Times wasteful newspaper printing business on Noster and Twitter, but felt it imperative to publish this research in the BTC Times, one of the last trusted names in news. The New York Times murders trees to print newspapers at 27 locations, which take a trip by truck and or plane and sometimes thousands of miles burning fossil fuels and trees all the way. Let's dive deeper. The average paid print Sunday circulation of the New York Times was 745,000 copies in 2022. In 2012, it was 2.13 million. So let's conservatively call it 1 million newspapers per Sunday on average. That's 52 million waste papers per year on Sunday alone. In 2022, the average weekday print circulation of the New York Times was approximately 310,000 copies, less than half the figure recorded in 2014. But to be nice, let's say 400,000 papers per weekday, Monday through Saturday, that's 2.4 million papers per week. Combining weekday and Sunday papers conservatively, that's 3.4 million newspapers per week or 100 and 76.8 million newspapers per year. The image below depicts one of the many horrific tree murdering plants operated by the New York Times. So many massive machines guzzling fossil fuels. So many rolls of paper that were once living trees. In the digital age, it's truly shocking that anyone would resort to murdering trees just to make a newspaper that most people throw away anyway, creating even more waste. But the New York Times seems to not care for the harm they caused to the planet. Just how many trees are murdered because of this reckless printing of the New York Times? Let's find out. A pine tree that measures 45 foot long and 8 inches in diameter produces 10,000 sheets of paper. But the average sheet of paper is 8.5 by 11 inches and each NYT waste paper is 12 by 22 inches when unfolded. So conservatively, let's say each NYT waste paper page is two pieces of normal paper. On September the 14th, 1987, the New York Times waste paper weighed 12 pounds and had 1,612 pages. That means just over three New York Times papers killed one tree. Extrapolating to the present day, the New York Times kills 59 million trees per year. This is unacceptable, but it gets worse. The New York Times has long invested in paper companies. It is the minority owner, though a through a company called Donahue Malbier, of papermaking machinery at the Resolute Forest Company plant in Clermont, Quebec, which produced 218,000 metric tons of newsprint in 2015 alone. According to the Arbor Day Foundation, in one year, one mature tree absorbs more than 48 pounds of CO2. Since the New York Times murders, you know, 59 million trees per year, that means they create 2.8 billion pounds of CO2 annually. But it gets even worse. The New York Times was founded in 1852. That's 171 years. That means the New York Times murdered over 10 billion trees and created over 484 billion pounds of CO2. This waste paper practice must not be allowed to continue. And here's the scary part. This 484 billion pounds of CO2 is only their direct environmental co cost based on tree murders. 
10 billion trees killed, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't account for all the wasted fuel during waste paper transport, electricity wasted by facilities, and hot air blown by New York Times riders, you know, more CO2. Environmental destruction and tree murder of this scale is unforgivable. The New York Times murders millions of trees per year, pumping billions of pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere to print their wasteful piece of shit newspaper full of propaganda, yet they got the gall to call Bitcoin wasteful. This hypocrisy shall not stand. If you want to join the global movement to save trees from wanton destruction, then stop what you're doing and call on the New York Times to change their wasteful practices. Tweet at at NY Times using the hashtags Stop the Presses and NY Times Up. You can find me on Twitter at Walker America. All right. <clears throat> little bit of hyperbole? Yeah. Sure. I'm pretty sure these numbers are taken just a bit out of context because that's exactly what the New York Times and the rest, like the Greenpeace and the Ripple assholes, they're doing the same shit. And if they're not going to play by the rules, then we're just going to do the same shit that they do and just... We'll just be hyperbolic about everything. They've killed billions of trees. They've pumped billions of pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere. Just give it right back to them. Give it right back to them. I mean, just like while you're listening to this and, you know, while I'm going off on a freaking tangent, just go, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to tweet, stop the presses or NY Times Up or New York New York Times Up. Either you know you can do that hashtag too. You know, tell them how you feel. It's like it's like you're you're destroying the planet. Greta Thunberg would be most displeased, except when she's actually the feature piece of the New York Times. You know who else was the feature piece of the New York Times? Hitler. Here is a literal New York Times headline. From December the 21st, 1924. Okay, 1924. So you got to go way back before World War II, before Hitler was a thing. New York Times says, Hitler tamed by prison. Released on parole, he's expected to return to Austria. According to the New York Times, Hitler was reformed. Hitler was a reformed man. New York Times, December 21st, 1924. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the New York Times, calling the shots for over 100 years and getting it wrong every single time. If you want to know more, go to nytimesup.org. That's nytimesup.org. Find out how to join the movement. Find out how to give their crap right back to them because it's about time that we just stopped you know taking it on the chin and turning the other cheek and doing all that crap no not really it's probably time to actually call the congressman why not i mean are they going to do anything probably not but dude what i mean you got anything better to do today well, then find your congressman's number and tell them that you're sick of the New York Times destroying the environment, 
chopping down trees and creating a whole boatload of waste that goes into landfills. Because honestly, what else is that paper even worth at this point? Now, I don't want to just rag on the New York Times forever and ever and ever because I've done it for damn near 30 minutes now. It's time to talk about black locust trees. Yep, this is the portion of the show that I'm excited about because I want to talk about the black locust tree. Not in really in conjunction with Bitcoin, not in conjunction with New York Times. It's just that all that tree talk and the fact that I had a little bit of extra time on my hands this morning uh, got me to say, you know what? I really need to put together something about black locust trees because this my it's it's while it's not my favorite tree like because I love pecan trees and I really like live oak trees so it's really hard to say what my favorite tree is I got to say this one you're going to want if you are getting out into the country if you're leaving the city even if you have a tiny 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 homestead like on a ha only a half acre there's a whole bunch that this tree can do for you Okay, so listen up. The black locust tree. This thing can grow up to 170 feet tall. Admittedly, most of them don't get that tall, but it can. That, that's like 52 meters for my friends out there on the, you know, everywhere outside of the United States. This thing grows. Its growth rate is three to four foot per year. Okay. It's native to North America. So all the guys, you know, most of us in North America can grow this tree just pretty much anywhere we want because they're cold hardy to zones three through eight. Three through eight, that means you can grow them from the tip of Florida all the way up to the Canadian border. And honestly, beyond that. And the soil pH that they like is neutral. It's between six and seven. And honestly, I've grown them in pHs as high as 8.4 because that was the pH of the soils around Canyon, Texas. And I was growing black locust tree like a freaking fiend, man. Why do you want to grow it? Well, let's look at just its firewood. All right, let's say you're in a colder climate. Black locust tree wood on a pound for pound basis is roughly half of anthracite coal. Anthracite coal is one of the most dense energy sources in solid form that we have on the planet today. Now, I'm not going to talk about uranium and its use in fission and nuclear energy because that's even more dense. But if we're just talking about normal people going out and, you know, log of wood, chunk of coal, what's got the, you know, amount, same amount of BTU, <clears throat> British thermal units, anthracite coal is really dense as far as its energy density is concerned. You can grow at three to four foot per year, a tree that has half, at least half of the BTU value of anthracite coal on a pound for pound basis. So one pound of black walnut tree wood is equal to half a pound of anthracite coal. This thing burns hot, and it burns for a very, very long time. <clears throat> because it grows three to four foot per year. Dude. Dude. And it spreads. You can have plentiful, plentiful firewood to heat your home. 
as far as timber, the, the actual wood itself, if you're not going to burn it, check this shit out. The, the wood is naturally rot resistant due to something called robinin in the wood. It's a chemical compound that retards fungal growth and other microbes, things that will, you know, that want to eat the wood, which is pretty much just, well, bacteria doesn't really eat wood. So honestly, it's more just the mycelium from, from fungi. It retards that. And how long does it retard it? Well, fence posts are made out of this wood because it also happens to be very straight and strong. We'll get to that. It lasts in the wood, in the soil, and we're talking full soil contact. This would last in the ground 100 years or more. Seriously, 100 years or more. In fact, let me see uh, if I can find this thing. Oh, do, do, do. Hold on for a second. Got to spin this thing up. Um, do, 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 do. Where's that one? Th- oh, the, like, for instance, the Ford Island Bridge connects the main island of Oahu, Hawaii to something called Ford Island. And it was constructed in the 1910s using black locust wood for the pilings. The pilings are still in use today, over 100 years later. The pilings, that means that not only are they fully in the ground because they were pounded into the ground, they were pounded into the ground that is permanently underwater. So now you've got two things. You've got water and you've got soil contact. And they're still there. That I'm, you, and you can grow this shit at three to four feet per year to 170 foot tall. Uh, so fence posts. You got a farm, got a homestead. You can grow all your fences. I'm serious. I mean, I know it's like, okay, it's not like going down to the lumber store and getting pre-made posts, but come on. We got to stop doing things the easy way because the easy way has gotten us what? Fiat money, fiat mindsets, fiat food, fiat everything, and it all sucks. So we should probably go back to doing it the old way. You can build outdoor furniture out of it. You can build decking out of it, like an outdoor deck, because it's rot resistant. It'll stay there for a hundred years. I know people that are replacing their, you know, their their whole outdoor decks. I got to replace one in uh, in uh, Colorado at uh, the at house Aspenwood. I got to replace that son of a bitch. It's going to be very, very expensive. And we're going to end up using fake shit. I guarantee it. And it's still probably only going to last for another 50 years. Where if, is it, whereas if I could get a hold of this lumber, I would have to maybe do it after I'm dead. It's just saying. So it the whole thing, this whole this whole uh, black locust tree thing, it's all sustainable because of its fast growth and its spread. So let's say I grow one of these things, I can coppice it. Okay, so let's say I've, I've grown it for, I got a 10-year-old black locust tree. It's probably, you know, 30, 30, 40 foot tall at that point after 10 years. And I can cut that son of a bitch off direct to the ground, right level with the ground. It's called coppicing. You know what happens? It grows again out of the same rootstock and it grows right back. It grows right back and it does it at three to four feet per year. I can pollard it, which means I can cut it off slightly above ground. 
And slightly above ground, you might want to consider, well, what's your browse level? Like when animals and deer and elk and cows and pigs and hogs and all kinds of shit coming through through your thing and you don't want them eating the leaves because they're highly nutritious and we'll get to that. What do you do? Well, you cut the sun of, if you want to grow, if you want to cut it and grow it again, instead of cutting it off at the ground, because when it starts growing, it'll be within the browse height and animals and critters will strip the leaves because they're delicious and nutritious. No, you, you cut it off at 10 foot above the ground. Yeah. Like I'm serious. And it grows where it grows back where from the crown where you cut it off. It is not, it won't kill the tree is what I'm saying. So you can harvest all that wood and it will grow back again. And you can do it in a way where the critters won't strip the leaves off, making it harder for it to grow. All right. So now the wood itself, if you're not going to burn it, right. What, what is it about this wood other than that it's rot resistant? Well, the wood is tougher than hickory, which is tougher than hard maple, which is tougher than oak. That's how strong this wood is. It has a very low rate of expansion and contraction. You can use this shit for hardwood flooring. You can also use it for beams. Seriously, like whole beams in like to build like a log cabin and you've got a main span that that goes over the goes over like the main living area. You're going to need a beam for that. This works for that. Why? because it has the highest tensile beam strength of any American tree, including ironwood, oak, lodgepole pine. And to top it all off, to top it all off, the wood is beautiful. You can make tool handles out of it. You can make outdoor and indoor furniture out of it. The wood works well. It's tough as shit, so so all your tools need to be sharp. But other than that, this is, not only is it the strongest wood, it's beautiful. I've seen pictures of this after it's been sanded and finished, like with tongue oil. This wood is gorgeous. It's as as pretty as cherry wood is. Seriously. Okay, that's just the timber. The tree is a legume which means that it fixes nitrogen. So let's get back to while the tree's alive, what is it doing? Not only is it sucking in CO2, which, you know, and sequestering it, which the New York Times hates, but it's also getting nitrogen out of the atmosphere and it's putting it into its root system. And it's like being harvested by rhizobia. And the rhizobia itself is also pulling nitrogen directly out of the air and turning it into bioavailable nitrogen for plant life. Because plants can't use nitrogen directly out of the air. It can transpire it. It can like, you know, sort of like comes into its stomata through its leaves and stuff and gets transported as gases around the tree, but it can't really use it as nitrogen fertilizer. It's not until it gets into this rhizobia stuff, these little nodules that are all along the roots that are, it's they're packed with a nitrogen fixing bacteria, right? Rhizobium. I think that's the name of the, the species. It, I, it doesn't matter because what these things do is it takes nitrogen from the air and from the gases in the tree and it turns it into fixable nitrogen, which can be used by plant life, which is a fertilizer. And it does it without any help, right? 
In fact, this, this tree fixes the same amount of nitrogen per acre as, as is needed for a 200 bushel per acre corn crop. Now, granted, not if you plant one tree in the middle of one acre, you're not going to get that. You need the entire acre to be the, the roots, you know, a collective root system of a whole shit ton of these trees. The point I'm trying to make is that if you have a root to root touching of black locust trees from end to end on a solid acre, it's going to fix something like 225 pounds per acre of nitrogen every year into the soil. And when you cut, whether you coppice the tree at the bottom or you pollard it up above browse height, every single time you do that, a whole bunch of the roots slough off and die and even more nitrogen gets put into the ground. And then the tree grows back and it does it all over again. That's how much nitrogen we're talking about. And it's for free. The, again, 200 bushel an acre corn takes about 200 to 250 pounds of nitrogen per acre to be able to do that. You got to buy that shit at the feed store or from your friendly neighborhood bear crop science guy, right? And this shit just does it all by itself. So you, you can do all kinds of neat stuff with it, like plant it next to gardens because the shade is dappled shade from the canopy. So if you plant it on the west side of a vegetable garden, the hottest and most unforgiving, unrelenting part of the day for vegetables is the afternoon. That's when it gets really hot. You want Eastern sun and they can take a little bit of like noontime sun and the further south you are towards the equator, the worse that gets, but it's really like one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock and five o'clock. That's brutal sunlight. Very brutal sunlight because everything's already hot because it heated up in the morning. If you've got this planted on the west side of the garden, this dappled shade falls over the vegetable garden and keeps it cool. And you'll end up the root system that's growing, that's just producing nitrogen. Eventually it will get over there. <clears throat> it will help fertilize that. It's so it's doing two things at once. It's cooling the environment and shading. And it's also providing nitrogen plus all the other stuff that I just listed. Why aren't we growing the living crap out of this tree? Well, I don't know, but I had mentioned to you that the, uh, like I think either yesterday or Friday that I had this whole thought, this whole thing in my head, which I've actually, actually I've, I have sketched it out on in Obsidian, the thought managing software that I've been telling y'all about. And I've got a whole diagram of how this thing works, but like a full section of land, 640 acres with 14,000 or 1,440 black walnut trees on it. And then like 4,000, uh, it was like four times the, four times that in black locust tree. Well, turns out I just happened to happen to across this paper today while doing this research, black walnuts interplanted with locust trees as nurse trees were shown to rapidly increase the growth of black walnut trees. And it's a paper by Clark and Williams in 1978 entitled Black Walnut Growth Increased When Interplanted with Nitrogen Fixing Trees and Shrubs Proceedings 
of the Indiana Academy of Sciences, volume 88, pages 88 to 91. And in that, they specifically talk about black locust trees being used for this. And the way that I've got this plan laid out is the black locust trees are exactly that. They're nurse trees for the black, or the black locust trees are the nurse trees for black walnuts. And it so happens the black walnuts, when they're very, very young, don't like direct sunlight a whole lot. <laughs> Amazingly enough, that's the way that they're, like they're, when they're really young, they hate the sun. When they're full grown, they can't get enough of it. So you need something to shade them out. And a lot of people have to go in their plant, black walnut plantations when these things are first started out and spray them with a solution of water and ground up chalk so that the chalk, the white chalk, reflects the sunlight away from the leaves. But if I've got something that's growing way faster than the black walnut tree, and its, its overstory is shading the saplings of the black walnuts, then I don't need to do that shit. And then the black walnuts are going to start getting past the, the black locust tree, because why? Because I'm cutting them down because I can sell them. I can sell the black walnut wood. I just told you why flooring, furniture is the hardest damn wood that you can find in the, in the North America. I mean, dude, do the math. All the, the only thing left is the marketing. I'm telling you, man, we're going to be rich beyond our wildest dreams. No, I'm just kidding. Bees though, really like this tree. Why? It has clusters of white flowers that produce an immense amount of nectar and they're edible to humans and they taste really, really good, and they only last for 10 days, which means that your black locust trees are only gonna be inundated by bees for like a week and a half to two weeks, and then they're gonna find something else to go feed on. But that honey that they produce is considered one of the highest quality honeys that you can produce anywhere in the world, because if the majority of the nectar comes from a, honey, from a black locust tree, it's considered some of the finest grade honey in the world. How does this not work for y'all, right? And if you plant this stuff on the west side of your house, that, that part of the house that just gets unrelenting sun in the summertime, at three to four foot growth, plus doing all the other shit that I mentioned, why are you not planting black locust trees on the west side of your house to shade that shit out? That's what I was doing back in Canyon. I had a whole line of them. I was propagating these things like mad. And then of course we had to move to Eastern Washington. And I've seen already four or five locations that have black locust trees and I've marked them all on a map because I'm gonna go get them again. And because of their fast growth and because of their feathery foliage and the fact that you know they grow so fast or feathery foliage and all the other things that go along with them, because of that, they make a great animal windbreak. So they protect against wind and all manner of stuff. This tree is amazing, ladies and gentlemen. The last thing I'll leave you with is its food producing ability. This thing produces animal fodder that is comparable to alfalfa in its protein uh, complement. The crude protein amount in the leaves of this tree, the black locust, is over 20%. It's over 20% nitrogen. So it does all the other stuff and it will feed your livestock too. 
God, it's just something to think about, y'all. I mean, this is, this tree is the most, it, it's the most unsung hero of the arborist weaponry when it comes to how the hell are we going to get wood? How are we going to get firewood? How are we going to get animal fodder? How are we going to get honey? How are we going to make black walnut plantations grow faster? How are we going to do all this shit? And almost nobody but permaculturists understand that this tree does all that and it's drought resistant to boot. So it grows in freaking deserts without very many problems. It's, an, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen and nobody talks about it except people like me who are clearly psychotic. I'm just kidding. I'm not psychotic, but I do get really excited when I come across something that does all this and all I got to do is stick it in the ground and it solves this many problems and gives me that much wood and that many BTU and that much honey and that much nitrogen and that much windbreak and that much shade cover and oh my God. In fact, if you Google if you, and I'm going to do it right now, I'm going to Google, I'm just going to actually, in my browser, I'm just going to type black locust tree. Locust tree. And what comes up? Oh, look. The very first thing that I see is black locust. And I see a panel of pictures. And then on the right-hand side of those pictures, I see Morton Arboretum, black locust, parentheses, not recommended, the Morton Arboretum. And then they go on to say, if I click that link, you know, cause this isn't right. This wood's not recommended. This, this tree, bad tree is not recommended. It says from mortonarb.org, black locusts have invasive traits that enable them to spread aggressively. While these trees have demonstrated invasive traits, there is insufficient support research or supporting research to declare them so pervasive that they cannot be recommended for any planting sites. Review the risks a uh, review of the risks should be undertaken before selecting these trees. Black locusts produce hanging clusters of very fragrant, fragrant white flowers in spring. This fast-growing native tree can form colonies and has brittle wood. Wrong. Wrong. Have you? No, it's not brittle. This is some of the toughest wood you can get. You can build flooring, furniture, tools, boxes, all posts that last a hundred years in the ground and beams for structure. Oh my God. And these guys have, that's the first thing that comes up when you Google it is that it's not recommended. Why? Because it solves so many problems all at once. It's almost impossible for a company like Weyerhaeuser to capitalize on it. So there you go. There you go. God dang. Um, wow. 54 minutes and I still got more news to do. Let's get to that here in a second. Just wanted to take a quick break to suck down some coffee before getting into this one. MicroStrategies Sailor fuses its work email address with Bitcoin Lightning. Oh, Cointelegraph, Braden, Andrea writing this one. The Bitcoin Lightning Network has integrated into the corporate email address of Michael Saylor, a Bitcoin bull. Yeah, we know. In an April 17th tweet, and I saw this yesterday, by the way, this is me talking. I saw this yesterday. I thought it was a joke. Apparently it's not. In an April 17th tweet, the former chief executive of the firm shared a screenshot 
with his 3 million Twitter followers of a few transactions sent to his sailor at microstrategy.com email from others in the form of Satoshis or SATs, the smallest denomination of Bitcoin. MicroStrategy's integration is enabled by the Lightning Address Protocol, which allows users to link an internet identifier like an email address rather than having to copy wallet addresses or use QR codes. It's unclear if MicroStrategy integrated the feature into all corporate emails at the firm. The Lightning Network is a popular layer too. Yeah, I know, we get it. Sailor, who now serves as executive chairman at the firm, has been the mastermind behind MicroStrategy's Bitcoin investment strategy, who aims to strengthen the firm's balance sheet. Yeah, I know, we get it. So getting back to the matter at hand, here we go. Sailor at MicroStrategy.com, his email address is now a Lightning address. I don't know how this works. I mean, I, I can conjecture what I mean by I don't know how it works is that I don't know exactly how to make it happen. Because if I did, you'd be able to zap my email account immediately. So I got to find out more about this, but apparently it is the case that you can use an existing email, an exi like an existing digital identifier, like an existing email, and fuse it with the Lightning Network so that you too, using your standard email address that you use for everybody can get lightning payments made to you. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But we're not done with MicroStrategy because their stock price has more than doubled in 2023 in lockstep with Bitcoin Yashua Gola Cointelegraph. MicroStrategy's bold Bitcoin investment strategy is playing out profitably so far this year. Today, MicroStrategy stock, MSTR, is up roughly 140% year to date to 350 bucks per share, its highest level since September of last year. It's mirrored Bitcoin's 90% year to date gains, maintaining a strong positive correlation with the top cryptocurrency. So how about that? All the people that were pointing at Sailor and laughing, aren't laughing anymore. Now, you got to remember, MicroStrategy's stock was up at like, I want to say it was up at 650 at one point or another. So he's got quite a bit to go, but that 650 number was also when, well, when Bitcoin was around 68,700 bucks and it didn't last long. You know, we fell off a cliff like we usually do. This always happens. If you're new to Bitcoin, welcome to Bitcoin. This is the way it works. In either event, it got down pretty low. So MicroStrategy still rolling ahead and they don't seem to be stopping anytime soon. What else we got? Uh, oh yes, ordinals. <laughs> there seems to be a problem with ordinals. Uh, let's find out what that is. Resolving the Bitcoin ordinals inscription validation dilemma. Retroactive re-indexing or future inclusion? This is from CryptoMode.com, written by J.P. Buntinix. I don't know if you, that's how exactly how you pronounce it, but that's the best I can do. The Bitcoin ordinals community is currently engaged in a spirited, that means spitting at each other, discussion concerning the most efficient method for addressing a code bug found in the ordinals protocol. This bug has led to the invalidation of over 1,200 inscriptions. Again, the bug has led to the invalidation 
of 1200 inscriptions. Although there is an agreement on the necessity to restore these inscriptions, the community is divided on whether to implement this retroactively or later. The inscription validation bug stems from the indexer function of the ordinals protocol, which exclusively counted inscriptions present in the first transaction input submitted to and including version 0.5.1. GitHub user, a GitHub user initially reported this defect very ordinally on April the 5th. Apparently that's the name, it's in quotes, very ordinally on April the 5th with several esteemed community members verifying its existence. So we know it's there. One potential solution involves selecting a specific block height for retroactively indexing the orphan inscriptions. <clears throat> it would start from inscription 42285, the approximate point at which the first orphan inscription was identified. Well-known ordinals community member Leonidas.og supports this purist approach. It would guarantee the ordinals protocol accurately reflects the logical ordering on chain. Nevertheless, Leonidas.og also acknowledges the possible complications from retroactively reordering inscription numbers. An alternative solution, also explained by Leonidas.og, involves maintaining existing inscription numbers and selecting a block height for incorporating the orphan inscriptions at a future date. This method, however, would not reassign official inscription numbers to the approximate eh, 1,200 orphan inscriptions within the protocol. And as a result, the market would need to ascertain the value of these inscriptions as misprints or otherwise. Ordinal's GitHub community member Yilak supports this option, contending that it is a superior choice since only a small percentage of inscription owners are infected. Yeah, screw those guys. The ongoing debate on the most suitable action for addressing the inscription validation bug coincides with notable milestones in the Bitcoin Ordinal's community. And we don't really need to go on and we're almost at the end of that one anyway. But the point is, is that for a week, this came out April the 11th. It is today is April the 18th, 2023. For a week, this shit's been going on and I'm just now hearing about it. Did have y'all, did y'all know about it? Anybody, any of you listeners out there, did y'all know that this shit was going on? Because I found out about it this morning, actually late last night, but what be that as it may, I just found out about it. So ordinals are broken. There's a bug in the whole thing. Will this be the last bug that they find? No, it won't be. Which is why you should stay as far away from ordinals as humanly possible. And I can only hope that the ordinals and inscriptions or whatever that are involved in the Bitcoin magazine thing are screwed as well. And if they're not screwed now, I hope that they will be screwed later on. Because these guys were auctioning shit off at 0.69 and 1.25 Bitcoin respectively for like the first two issues. And then all of a sudden they were selling at like 70 Bitcoin and 109 Bitcoin later on. Are you, are you kidding? Are 109 Bitcoin to get a Bitcoin magazine digital cover. I, I don't get it. It makes, me, it makes me more angry the more that I think about it, which is why I really hope that they're all affected by this particular bug, and if not this bug, a later bug, and if not that bug, the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Nobody should be doing this because it's, you don't know if your shit's gonna be safe. 
just buy Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin. I mean, honestly, dude, how hard, how honestly, how hard can it be? For God's sakes, let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. I got oil West Texas up a tenth of a point to eighty dollars and ninety-one cents. Brent North Sea is almost flat, holding at eighty-four dollars and seventy-eight cents. Natural gas, however, swinging for the fences again, two days in a row. This is actually kind of odd as of late. Four point six two percent to the upside, two dollars and thirty-eight cents per thousand. Gasoline, however, is down just over a point to $2.74 a gallon. All of your shiny metal rocks are doing well, including gold, which is at $2,017.50, and that's after a half point gain. Silver is up 0.79% to $25.28. Platinum up 3.18%, copper up a half. Palladium knocking them all away at 3.62% to the upside. Ag is all in the green. Everybody's doing well today, I guess. Wheat is up 0.11. That's not the winner, though. The winner is chocolate. Two full points to the upside. I got live cattle up a quarter point. Lean hogs are unchanged. Feeder cattle are up over a third of a point. Dow is down scant, basically sideways, as is the S&P, as is NASDAQ. S&P Mini with the only notable loss today of 0.15% to the downside. Let's, oh, look, oh my God, Bitcoin is not dead again. $30,248.71 after almost half a million Bitcoin sent in the last 24 hours. Average transaction value of 1.4 BTC. Median transaction value of 0.011 BTC or 320 bucks. Block times are low, which has implications for the mempool, and we'll get to that. Eight minutes and 37 seconds. Oh, my God. 14.9% increase in hash rate leads us to 384 exahashes per second. Again, more on that here in a second. I got 0.12 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 20.5 Taken fees overall in the last 24-hour period. Dogecoin, your shitcoin indicator, which means that all of the shitcoins are doing well today, is at 9.3 United States pennies. So gaining almost all of its bullshit back since Doge was taken off of Twitter. Because apparently that's how we determine what value is. Is if the icon of a meme coin was pasted onto Twitter by Elon Musk. Really? That's how we evaluate value? Holy smokes. Oh my God. $588.9 billion is the market cap of Bitcoin, which is 4.36% of gold's entire market cap. And if you so choose, you may now purchase 15.1 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,349,911.96 of and 5,454.7 of those are in the Lightning Network, valued at $166 million. Uh, 74,494 payment channels is the amount of payment channels that we know about. And 67.0% of all this stuff's being run over Tor. And there is an April 20th retarget date for difficulty 
that is going to be a positive 2% difficulty change mempool. It very well may actually clear, ladies and gentlemen. We're down to what? Uh, 19 blocks. 19 blocks are carrying 8,248 transactions. Uh, and once those clear, because I think last night it was at 54 blocks. I don't see any reason why we can't clear this shit out today. Just depends. But either way, you're going to pay a low priority of four Satoshis per V-byte, a high priority of six Satoshis per V-byte, or about a quarter of a dollar for a standard SegWit transaction with no buffoonery in it. That's the weather report. Welcome to part two of the news you can use, starting out with Unchained, announcing a $60 million Series B fundraising round, BTC Casey, Bitcoin Magazine. Hey, BTC Casey probably was not at the table raising his hand saying, yes, we should do Bitcoin ordinals. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. This is where one of the places that I get my news from. So no matter what Bitcoin Magazine is deciding to perpetrate, I still read some of their stuff simply because, well, their writers are good. I'm just saying. And I'm pretty sure that they were not in on the ordinals slash inscriptions meeting. Unchained, a financial service provider for Bitcoin hodlers, has announced that it has raised $60 million in its Series B funding round. The funding was led by Valor Equity Partners and included participation from existing investors such as NYDIG, Trammel Venture Partners, Ecliptic Capital, and Highland Capital Partners. According to a press release sent to Bitcoin Magazine, funding will be used to expand Unchained's client base and improve its suite of financial services. Unchained's collaborative custody model aims to use Bitcoin's native multi-sig capabilities to provide the benefits of self-custody while mitigating risks associated with self-custody. The model allows clients to share control of their Bitcoin between private keys they hold themselves and private keys held by Unchained and other financial service companies. The platform currently secures over 2 billion with a B in Bitcoin across thousands of keys worldwide. According to the press release, that's $2 billion, by the way, not 2 billion Bitcoin because, you know, there's only 21 million. Uh, oh, where was I? Oh, Vivek Patapati, a partner at Valor who will be joining Unchained's board of directors, described Unchained's current position saying that, quote, in the midst of market chaos, Unchained has emerged as a highly trusted provider of Bitcoin custody and financial services through superior technology, risk management, regulatory compliance, and client service, end quote. May I add that they also didn't get stupid which probably is all under the risk management, but still they didn't do stupid shit like take loans or over leverage or I don't know, buy stock in FTX, whatever. I mean, these guys are pretty, they're pretty much set to be one of the only survivors of this hurricane that we are still not out of yet, by the way. So Unchained, one of my favorite companies in the space. 
The company has originated over $500 million in Bitcoin collateralized loans since 2017 while experiencing zero loan losses. The Unchained Trading Desk allows clients to buy Bitcoin directly to cold storage and its Independent Retirement Account, or IRA, offering allows clients to hold keys to their Bitcoin with tax advantage retirement accounts, which the release notes is an industry first. Unchained feels that as Bitcoin continues to grow in adoption, there's a tremendous opportunity for products that bridge into the traditional dollar ecosystem around credit, trading, investment, and other financial services. Quote, using this fresh capital investment to expand our reach and suite of services, we hope to enable new entrants to Bitcoin to leapfrog centralized custodians into our safer collaborative custody model, said Unchained CEO Joe Kelly. I thought I thought the other guy was the CEO. Um, what was his name? Oh God, I'm never gonna be able to remember it right now. So I'm just gonna move on to the SEC. Yes, that's right. Gary Gensler being grilled. We'll get to that. But right now, the SEC has labeled Algorand and five other tokens as securities in the Bittrex lawsuit. Yesterday, I wasn't sure. Now I am. The SEC is indeed suing Bittrex and Andre Bagansky tells us more from Decrypt. The Securities and Exchange Commission categorized six cryptocurrencies as securities in its lawsuit against crypto exchange Bittrex on Monday, highlighting them as potentially pivotal assets in an enforcement action against the Seattle-based firm. The crux of the SEC's complaint against Bittrex is that the platform failed to register with the watchdog as an exchange, broker-dealer, or as a clearing agency, which is a requirement for offering securities to customers in a manner regulated by the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. In order for that to be true, the SEC needs to establish that at least one of the tokens made available by Bittrex is indeed a security. And though SEC Chairman Gary Gensler has claimed the label applies to everything but Bitcoin, the agency has honed in on six specific coins in this latest action. The tokens listed are OMG, Dash, Monolith, Naga, Real Estate Protocol, and Algorand. Uh, I'm pausing here to say that Dash is a cryptocurrency that was being highly and heavily and relentlessly shilled by Roger Ver. During the height of the block wars, 20... The latter part of 2016, actually, he was pretty much shilling it for the last half of 2016 and all through 2017, and well, at least until he released Bitcoin Cash, Roger Ver was actually saying to people in mass that Dash, Dash was better than Bitcoin. Will Roger Ver come under the scrutiny of the SEC? I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that if he's holding Dash right now, he probably wishes that he wasn't. Of course, then again, who knows what Roger Ver is actually thinking at any given time. Anyway, the agency says there will likely be more, describing the lineup as a non-exhaustive list of tokens that they deem are securities. Of the tokens included in the lawsuit, Algorand is the largest by market cap with a total value of around $1.6 billion. 
Algorand did not respond immediately to requests for comment. Crypto Twitter zeroed in on the connection between Gensler and Algorand following Bittrex's lawsuit announcement, where Gensler previously called the network great technology that could support a ride-sharing device like Uber. None of the six tokens issuers are named as defendants in the Bittrex lawsuit, and the SEC has not announced any separate charges. The legal tactic bears a similarity to the inclusion of coins in other lawsuits brought by the SEC Lawrence Law Council J.W. Verrett told Decrypt. Quote, it strikes me as very similar to the Wahi case, he said, referring to the SEC's insider trading lawsuit brought against former Coinbase product manager Ishan Wahi and two others last year. Quote, they're making claims that tokens are securities without suing the actual tokens themselves, end quote. The tokens named in the SEC case against Wahi are an entirely different cast of cryptos compared to those named in the Bittrex lawsuit. But the overarching idea is that they all fall under the classification of securities using the Howey test. Stemming from a 77-year-old lawsuit concerning a Florida citrus grove, the Howey test is the SEC's four-pronged method for determining whether an asset is a security which involves the investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profits to be derived from the efforts of others. The lack of overlap between coins in the Wahi case and Bittrex's lawsuit could be a result of the SEC not trying to put all its eggs in one basket, Fireblock's chief legal and compliance officer, Jason Alagrante, told Decrypt, quote, Each case, depending on what the defendants want to do, is a potential test case, he said. There's probably assets they feel pretty strongly meet the definition of a security, and I guess they're kind of picking from that list and sprinkling them in as they go about in different cases, end quote. In terms of Algorand, the SEC claims that the Algorand Foundation constitutes a common enterprise based on the not-for-profit organization's alleged role in conducting and promoting an initial token sale of Algo in, in 2019. Quote, in promoting the Algo token sale, the Algorand Foundation tied the potential growth of the Algorand blockchain to potential demand for the ALGO token itself and to its own commitment to preserving a price floor for ALGO, the lawsuit states. The lawsuit notes that ALGO was added to Bittrex's international and U.S.-based platforms in April of 2020. Additionally, the SEC claims that statements made by Algorand and the Network's foundation, quote, led ALGO investors to reasonably expect to profit from Algorand Incorporated and the Algorand Foundation's efforts to grow the Algorand protocol, end quote. When speaking about the SEC's case to, against Wahi, Policy Council at the Blockchain Association, Marissa Tashman Koppel, oh, wait a minute, hold on, do that again. Marissa Tashman Koppel previously told Decrypt the case could have huge implications on the industry, potentially implicating other exchanges as venues that facilitate the sale of unregistered securities. Well, that's exactly what they're going to do. This isn't a surprise. Of course they're going at, they're gonna go after Kraken. They're gonna go after Coinbase. They're, they've been after Bittrex. They're after C, Binance and CZ. They're gonna go after all of them. Why? Because they're all venues of shit coinery. They're casinos of just filth. So yes, 
they're all going to get hit by the SEC. And meanwhile, Bitcoin chugs along. Why? Because nobody can stop this thing. There's no central office. There's no mailing address. There's no 800 number. There's no customer support. Bitcoin is the only one in this field of bullshit that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. So what do you do? You buy Bitcoin, you hold in Bitcoin. Quote, to finish off, I don't think these claims could survive a challenge in court, Verrett said. I think parties will settle and we won't get a final answer. And that's why the SEC is making these aggressive claims. You know what? Wishful thinking. And you may be right there, Verrett, but honestly, dude, I, the, the, the jig is basically up. It doesn't mean that shit coins go away. They're never going to go away. Even if this entire crop of shit coins just evaporate in an instant from now, they'll, the entire field will be replaced with the seeds of bullshit that were laid down by the existing crop. They're weeds. And the only way to get rid of weeds like this, I don't, well, other than spraying it with glyphosate, I don't really know how. That's why I suggest that this is never going away. The SEC is going to be able to file lawsuits for millennia. I'm just, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, but, but it seems that the lack of crypto compliance is the SEC's fault, or at least according to Republican lawmakers. Andre Bogonsky has this one for decrypt. A chorus of Republican lawmakers sang out against SEC Chair Gary Gensler today on Tuesday, roasting, roasting the officials' approach to regulating the digital asset industry in a letter of condemnation. The letter landed just ahead of Gensler's testimony before the White, not White House, before the House Financial Services Committee, which is centered on oversight of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And just after the agency boss celebrated his second full year, at the commissioner's helm. Commemorating the milestone in a Twitter post yesterday, Gensler highlighted the agency's 1,500 enforcement actions filed over the past two years, which he said involve actions against rampant non-compliance in the crypto markets. But the perceived lack of compliance falls squarely on Gensler due to a lack of clear rules and a non-existent path for crypto trading firms to register with the financial watchdog, the letter claims, quote, without clear rules of the road, your push for firms to, quote, come in and register is a willful misrepresentation of the SEC's non-existent registration process. The only entity to blame for the lack of registrants is the SEC itself, end quote. Wow. The letter accuses Gensler and his agency of forcing the digital assets ecosystem into a regulatory framework that's neither compatible nor applicable as well, putting forth the notion that firms' activities do not involve an offering of securities. Oh, they want to be shit cleaners, do they? Signaling a unanimous sense of criticism on behalf of Republicans on the House Financial Services Committee, the letter was signed by each member. One of them, Warren Davidson, has said he plans on introducing legislation to have Gensler fired. Committee Chairman Patrick McHenry also took the gloves off ahead of Gensler's testimony in an interview with CNBC anchor Andrew Ross Sorkin, condemning his performance as a regulator on Tuesday morning. Quote, Gary Gensler 
has had a woeful act to just go out and send Wells notices rather than actually providing any clarity so we can have this innovation here in the United States, he said, referring to the SEC's step up in scrutiny towards digital asset firms so far this year. McHenry referenced legislation that would clarify how cryptocurrencies would be considered commodities versus securities, an area of disagreement between the Commodities Futures Trading Commission and SEC that could impact which regulator has authority over swaths of the industry. He also mentioned the need for regulation regarding stablecoins, oh boy, which the House Financial Services Committee is scheduled to discuss tomorrow, yay! The committee plans on reviewing 72 pages worth of draft regulation that's been proposed on the technology. Republican lawmakers have been hell-bent on bringing regulatory clarity to the digital assets industry, forming a financial services subcommittee dedicated to creating rules for the road earlier this year. From Gensler's point of view, rules for the digital asset industry actually already exist in the form of today's securities law, he said during testimony last month. Additionally, Gensler has leaned on the Howey test as a guide for determining what digital assets constitute a security versus a commodity. The letter concludes by urging the SEC to work with Congress, saying it would ensure innovators and investors have proper protections and yield regulatory clarity that actors in the digital asset space have been seeking for years. Quote, you have failed to provide a path forward that allows digital asset trading platforms to register, it states. Quote, we look forward to continuing our discussion on these critical issues. (laughs) Oh my God, you suck, my friend. That's basically what he's saying. I mean, like, really? Here to have somebody come up to you and say, you have failed, sir. Would you like to go to dinner? No, what the hell? It doesn't work that way. You can't just tell somebody that they're a failure and then tell them that they look forward to continuing their discussion. That makes the other guy seem like he doesn't want to participate in the discussion all that much now, doesn't it? who, Who wants to talk with somebody who's called them a failure? Holy shit, people. Have at least a modicum of decency. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Gary Gensler either, but dude. Now, before we do this last one for the day, I want to say something about the Howey test. Why does it matter that it's 77 years old? If we were using that, if we were using age as some kind of gauge for usefulness, we'd just kill people by the time that they were 70. Go watch the movie Logan's Run. And the whole story in Logan's run is you get to 35 years and a little crystal in your hand starts beeping. And when it starts blinking and beeping, you got to go and get yourself killed because you're worthless to society after 35 years. That's an arbitrary number. So is 77. Why not just vaporize all the gold that we find? Just throw it into the fucking ocean. Why? Well, it's 5,000 years old. It's 10,000-year-old technology. Therefore, it's not worth anything. Bullshit, it is worth something. I don't think it's worth what it's selling for on the open market, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth anything. And the Howey test, for me, actually makes a lot of fucking sense. Dude, is it, is it, am I selling you something and you expect a profit from that because I'm going like I've hired a third party or even me 
myself as a third party to do the particular amount of work, then it's a security. There's nothing wrong with the definition that's provided by the Howey test. The only people that are bitching and moaning about this are shit coiners and people that want for whatever reason to see shit coins succeed, which is make, which calls into question all these guys. And I don't care if the Republican, they could be fucking little green men for all I give a shit. This has nothing to do with partisanship. Whoever these dudes are, they sound like shit coiners to me. They, I mean, how dare you apply a 77-year-old definition that's worked well for 77 years to this brand new industry? Because the only thing that's new about it is that it's guided by electrons down wires and photons down optical cables. Everything else is the same. So that's the only part in, that's the only defense that I'll come to from Gary Gensler. The fact one thing that I don't like about Gary Gensler is that they, those same guys that I'm bitching about, they are right in the fact that he has provided no guidance whatsoever for the registration process, which I've got in air quotes up here, right? They're like, he's just coming in. He, remember, he was begging, please, for the love of God and all that is holy, just come in, just come in off the street. And, and register with us. And what does he do? He sends out Wells notices to those that did. And that's why the whole thing's a clown show. Nobody knows what anybody's doing. And the one thing in the world that is holding this entire freaking circus together is the last tent pole that holds up what's left of the circus tent. And that honestly is the Howie test. I'm telling you guys, you may bitch at me and you may be raising your fists in the air when I say this, but the Howie test is the best measure that we do have as to what a security is. Because it doesn't matter if I write it on a piece of paper as a promise that I'm going to make you money through the actions of a third party, or if I send you a fucking email down a goddamn line that's either copper or fiber optic that says the exact same thing. Because it doesn't matter how the message is transmitted. It's what's being done. What is being done. And the Howey test actually describes that as it's probably the most descriptive thing to ever come out of the United States federal government ever as to how things are defined. And yet I got people that are so incensed, whether they're shit coiners or they're on the financial services subcommittee or whatever it is, that they're talking about how old this test is. It doesn't matter how old it is. Gold is 10,000 years old. We're not throwing that. We're not ditching that. You know, we're not shooting people in the head because they turned 35. We're not shooting people in the head because they're one year after retirement in the United States. We're not doing any of that. So when you get a feeling that the Howey test is too old, what do you want to replace it with? Do you have an idea of what a security is? Because if it's not as defined by the Howey test, I don't know what better description you can come up with to what a security is. What is a security? So let's, let's just finish all that. Let's note that Coinbase is thinking about moving away from the U.S. because of regulatory clarity. And 
Let's also finish off with uh, Bitcoin fund inflows top 100 million in one week as investors flee to safety. $100 million is not that much money decrypt, but let's really finish this one strong. With Turner Wright, writing for Cointelegraph, U.S. House Committee Chair repeatedly presses Gary Gensler. Is Ether a commodity or is it a security? It's a simple question, Gary. Can't you answer it? Patrick McHenry, chair of the United States House Financial Services Committee, jumped right into criticism of the Securities and Exchange Commission and its leadership over digital assets at an oversight hearing. This has been going on today. In an April 18th hearing on oversight of the SEC, Rep. McHenry used his opening statement to bring up the commission's punishing of digital asset firms through regulation by enforcement without a clear path to compliance. The member of Congress reiterated calls for U.S. lawmakers to provide clear rules of the road for crypto through legislation. In addition, he pressed SEC Chair Gary Gensler to give a definitive answer on whether Ether qualified as a security under the SEC's purview or a commodity under the Commodity Future Trading Commission. McHenry repeatedly talked over Gensler's response, sorry, over Gensler's response says that did not include specifics, citing the SEC chair's willingness to label Bitcoin as a commodity and hinting at, a, at private discussions on ETH prior to the hearing. Quote, clearly an asset can't be both a commodity and a security, said McHenry. I'm asking you, Sitting in your chair now to make an assessment under the laws as existing, is Ether a commodity or is it a security? He added, quote, you have prejudged on this. You've taken 50 enforcement actions. We're finding out as we go, as you file suit, as people get Wells notices on what a security is in your view and in your agency's view, end quote. Representative Maxine Waters, ranking member of the House Committee, did not press Gensler on ETH, but focused on her questioning on the SEC's enforcement capabilities. According to the SEC chair, the commission had the means, the authority, and the will to bring crypto firms into regulatory compliance. Many in and out of the crypto space have criticized the SEC under Gensler for taking enforcement actions against firms involved with digital assets and blockchain technology. And on April the 17th, the SEC charged crypto asset trading platform Bittrex and its co-founder William Shihada for offering unregistered securities and a Wells notice issued to Coinbase in March suggests the major exchange could be next. Gensler claimed the crypto market was rife with non-compliance. Well, it is. In many cases, firms willfully doing so. His written testimony said compliance with the SEC extended to decentralized finance platforms, an indication of the commission proposing changing its rules to include DeFi in exchanges under its purview. The April 18th hearing was the first time Gensler had directly addressed the House committee since October of 2021, prior to the collapse of FTX Celsius, BlockFi, and crypto-friendly banks, including Signature, Silicon Valley Bank, and Silvergate. The Financial Services Committee will also meet to discuss stablecoin regulation at an April 19th hearing. So there you go. Even these guys are like, you know, these guys are like, dude, is Ether a security or is it not? And apparently, as far as I know, Gensler has given no specific answer. Why? If you said, because this is the same guy, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not all raw, raw Gensler. 
There's a lot about them I don't like, and this is one. If you're going to make the statement that everything is a security but Bitcoin, and then somebody asks you, well, does that include ETH? And then you won't answer? What the hell does that... What signals did those put out that, that signals somebody who either doesn't know or sitting on something waiting to spring something later? And I don't like that. I don't like that. That just it sounds like a like coiled up snakes in the grass suck. And Gensler's acting like a coiled up snake in the grass. Eh, do with it what you want. That's the end of what is now the afternoon roundup. All right, dad says jokes. You know, not everyone thinks of Cleopatra as beautiful, but that's how Julius sees her. Get it? I love that one. That's a, that's that's actually a good one. Did you know the original movie Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor and uh, I can't remember the dude's name is in this Richard Burton? Yeah, Richard Burton and and uh, Elizabeth Taylor. In the I, 1972 movie, Cleopatra, you know how long that thing was? That thing is four hours long. Four hours in 1970 freaking two. Could you imagine? I mean, that's like an event. You go to the movie theater because that's the only place you were seeing it in 1972. You go to the movie theater, dude, you're getting dressed up for that one. Yeah, I caught that yesterday because I was watching a... Uh, Exodus, uh, it was uh, Ridley Scott's version of Moses and the Ten Commandments, which was okay to begin with, but I have a sneaky suspicion that he was, that Ridley Scott was rushed by whoever he was doing business with because there's a, there's some holes in it, but it was pretty good. Visually, like all Ridley Scott movies are, pretty damn stunning. And I like the way he handled the conversations with Moses and God because he represented God as like a little kid. It actually makes kind of sense. And it really wasn't all preachy. It was more about what what we think or what we think we know happened with Moses and who he was and how he was in the, you know, how he ended up being adopted by you know Pharaoh at the time and his brother was Ramses and all that kind of stuff. It was more about that than the Hebrew God Yahweh, right? So if you're looking for if you're looking for a historical piece to watch from Ridley Scott, Exodus is pretty damn good. It's not bad at all. You know, and it's like two hours. And that's when of course it was like after I finished the movie and it was like, oh more movies suggested for you. Why don't you sit your happy ass down for four hours and watch Cleopatra? I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that or not. But um if you want to support the show, you know where to go. Podcasting 2.0. You can go to newpodcastapps.com. That's newpodcastapps.com. And get yourself a modern podcast app, please, for the love of God. And tell all your friends that if you see any of your friends using a podcast app, make sure you go say, hey, hey, what podcast app are you using over there? And when you look at it, make sure you you snort and go, oh, I can't believe you're using legacy podcast apps. And they'll go, what the hell are you talking about? And then that's your in. You can tell them all about value for value, podcasting 2.0, and how they, by using Bitcoin, can support people like me their favorite podcaster by streaming Satoshis or possibly giving me a boostagram. Tell me how you feel. Tell me that you didn't like any of the stuff that I did on the Black Locust Tree today 
Or conversely, tell me that you want more stuff like that. Let me know. I, I, I would, I want to be able to bring you different stuff. And I figure black locust trees was about as different as I was going to get. So that's why it's in the show. And I, I kind of hope you find it helpful. A tree that does all the things that this tree does and is so easily propagatable. It's not even funny. How do you propagate one of these things without getting seed? You dig around its root base and you chop off a fist-sized root of its, or a fist-sized uh, size, a fist-sized piece of its root, and shove it into a hole in the ground. And one year later, you'll have a brand new spanking black locust tree. Rinse and repeat. You can have a line of them. After that, dude, it's the sky's the limit. You've got all your firewood that you'll need for the year. I'm telling you, man, this particular tree is one of the most important trees for the United States of America because it's the tree that built the nation. Nobody really talks about that, but all the fences and like the colonies, they were all built from black locust tree. It's a hard wood. And then what, then what did they find out about it after 50 years of not dying on the shores of their new continent? It, their fences were still there. And after a hundred years, what happened? Their fences are still there. This is a hundred year old wood with full soil moisture contact. You can't, you, even oak doesn't last that long, ladies and gentlemen. This is the only tree that has all these elements contained into one. So please, 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 if you're considering planting some trees, plant the black locust tree and propagate the living shit out of it. I guarantee you'll not be sorry for it. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.